Did archaeology just confirm the Bible? Welcome to Answers News for uh, Wednesday, January 17, 2024. In today's top story, new technology reveals the fascinating history of an ancient biblical city. Hello, I'm Dr. Georgia Purdom, and I'm joined with Rocket Rob Webb and Patricia Engler. And so let's get right into this. New research affirms destruction of biblical city described in 2 Kings, archaeologists say. All right, so um, it's always really cool when we can see um, archaeology confirm the Bible. Not that it ever would not confirm the Bible, um, but it's nice to be able to to really see that specific connection between what we're finding and what we read in the Bible. And so just to give you a little bit of context for this, so this is basically about the destruction of the biblical city of Gath by King Haziel of Aram, and that is found in 2 Kings 12, 17. And so just to give you a little more background, so Joash is the good king of Judah at that time. He's been saved by his grandmother at the Athaliah, who killed all his siblings, um, but he was saved. If you remember that account from scripture, he was kept hidden. He became king at the age of seven and he repaired the temple. Um, so this is happening. So Haziel, it says, king of Syria went up and fought against Gath and took it. So it was destroyed. Okay. It's very clear there. He took the city. Um, but when he goes to go up against Jerusalem, uh, Joe actually, actually gives him a lot of gifts and he decides um, not to destroy Jerusalem, which is a very good thing. And so anyway, so that's basically what this particular um, uh, finding is referring to. So Rob, why don't you give us a little bit more information about what technology they're using to figure this out. Yeah, the technology is pretty interesting. They say uh, they were applying thermal demagnetization, easy for me to say, of archaeological materials, a tool uh, for detecting burnt clay and estimating its firing temperature. So that's really the burning question that they have regarding this research. Burning, burning question. I question. got it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> They're trying to estimate these firing temperatures of these so-called, um, basically all of these mud bricks. And so uh, kind of the context here is in that time frame, a lot of the, the different civilizations, they would use these mud bricks to try to build their structures. And they believe before the, the time of the Romans, they would sun dry these bricks. And if they're sun-dried and you measure the magnetic field of them, the magnetic field is going to be very randomly oriented, and so they're able to detect that, versus if it was fire kiln. They had to do the firing kiln to try to increase the structural, the durability of these bricks. And if you do that, then it actually aligns with the Earth's magnetic field. So essentially what they're doing is they're trying to measure that magnetic field there. And what's interesting is actually one of our education specialists that we have that works here, her name is Corey East. We just recently did a Zero Compromise episode with her, if you guys want to check that on, on YouTube. Um, she actually met the guy who's kind of leading this research. His name is Dr. Yoav uh, Vaknin. So um, I sat right next to Corey. So Corey was able to kind of give me some more details on what's going on. And essentially the reason why uh, this is such big research for them is because they, they kind of already assumed that there was some kind of a disastrous fire. And this just basically kind of proves it using these techniques. So kind of take a step back, big picture here. They're trying to see, were they fire killing bricks or were they destroyed by destruction fire like, like it talks about in the Bible? And again and again, what we see, you know, this great research, archaeology just again confirms the Bible, which I mean, really should be no surprise to us. It yeah. is God's word. And notice that we say confirm and not prove. That's one of the things that sometimes people will say. Um, we say confirm uh, because, because God spoke. We don't need to prove it from that uh, point of view. God knows everything. He's always been there, cannot lie. And that's always going to be our starting point, the true history. 
history book of the universe. Right, so we expect that archaeology will confirm the Bible, um, and because archaeology is a historical science, it doesn't necessarily prove things anyway, that's yep. not really yep. how it works, um, but it is encouraging to see how what we see in the real world does match what God tells us, and you can hop on our website, answersingenesis.org, to see a lot of other examples of how archaeology does confirm the Bible. Yeah, and we have a, um, as uh, Rob mentioned, we have a brand new education specialist, Corey East, and she's going to be offering a program for kids ages 11 to 18 this summer called Explore Archaeology. And so if you get on our Creation Museum um, website and click on the education tab, you can find out more information uh, about that program. I'm super excited. And she's also offering um, daily at the Creation Museum, not every day, you have to check the schedule, yep. but she's also offering a biblical archaeology um, session that's free um, as long as you are here in the museum. Uh, you get to see that. And so uh, it's really exciting to be able to see all these archaeological finds and again, how they just confirm and affirm God's word. Yep. Good stuff. All right. This next article is called The Myth of Genesis. Now, we said we could spend a whole episode oh, yeah. <laughs> probably on this one article, but we will not. Um, so this was written by Rob, Robin Schumacher, and he is an apologist. So he um, has a master's in Christian apologetics. He has a PhD in the New Testament. And um, he basically um, is saying, well, what do I think about Genesis? And, and how did I come to my conclusions about Genesis? And he kind of starts off the article with... Um, saying that he listened to a series of podcasts by well-known apologist uh, William Lane Craig. You may have heard of him before. And um, in this podcast series, basically uh, Craig, he said, well, what do I think? You know, he, he kind of goes through and gives the pros and cons of all the different uh, creation ideas and uh, whether it was, you know, in six days or millions of years or, you know, all the different views. <laughs> and at the end, Craig says, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what actually happened, how all these things actually came to be, how God created. I have no idea. And we obviously would say, well, that's very problematic because God is very clear in his word um, in this. And it's sad to see somebody who claims to be a Christian apologist really, um, again, compromising on the truthfulness and authority of God's word. Right, and it's, it's because he's not getting his ideas from the Bible. You'll notice if you read this, he doesn't actually quote the Bible to back up these ideas. He quotes uh, Christians who have compromised and taken an old earth stance before, often because they feel like they have to accommodate what the scientists are saying, but what they're saying is based on assumption about the past, not facts we can see in the present primarily. So it actually made me kind of thankful that I got to go through evolution classes and hear from the scientists themselves and see that it is smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he also talked a lot about just this idea of Genesis being a myth. So what was he meaning by that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't still quite understand what he was trying to say. But r right off the bat, I mean, you, you basically see the author's bias. Even though he says, I have no idea. I mean, it's very clear. He kind of already leans towards that old camp idea there. I mean, there really is, is no neutrality, which we say all the time. But one of the things that I always read, and any time I read one of these articles, you hear this a lot, right? People always say, literal Genesis, age of the earth. Those are just side issues, right? But no, this is actually a very big issue. Of course, it's not a salvation issue, but it is a big issue because it's a matter of trusting God's word are we going to trust biblical authority? Where is our ultimate authority going to be? Is it going to be God's word or man's word? And one of the things they always fail to mention here is what about the flood of Noah's day, right? That's one of the things that people always kind of miss in terms of if we're going to accept the millions of years of death and suffering, which we're going to get into just in a minute here, what does that mean in terms of the flood of Noah's day, right? Is it global flood or local flood? And if you take that millions of years approach, by necessity, you have to believe it was a local flood. And there's a lot of problems that you can check out on our website later on. But one of the things I also thought was interesting 
in this article that he basically kind of summarizes. He goes through, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis and some of the other guys, Old Testament experts on John Oswood trying to talk about mythology. Is it really true mythology or is it false mythology? But I, I think the bottom line here is he says at the end, um, he says, in the end, if you press me hard, I'm going to tell you the same thing Craig did on the subject of how creation happened. I have no idea. And so really it just goes back to the fact that there is no neutrality. There's lots of different views that are out there, gap theory, progressive creation, um, day theory, all these other ones, but really you have to realize these are all just forms of humanism, right? So it's basically taking man's word and elevating that above God's authority. So anytime you're mixing these religions, that's what's called syncretism. Anytime you're mixing those religions, something has to give. And every single time with these, it's always the Bible that has to give. I mean, think about it. Do we ever do the reverse? Do we ever start manipulating and changing secular textbooks to match what the Bible says? No, of course not, right? We always see the opposite. You know, and he says, like, well, we can all agree, basically, that God, that God created. He's like, he's like, basically, no Christian's going to disagree on that. It's just how God created. And he's like, we're going to disagree whether the days in Genesis are literal days or allegorical days. Um, so the metaphorical days that mean longer periods of time. But, you know, it, it's interesting because one of the things that we talk a lot about here at the Creation Museum is, you know, that word day is used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word yom. Yet people only question actually what it means in Genesis. It isn't questioned anywhere else. And so if you look at how, you know, you have to look at context of how the word day is used. And so if you look outside of Genesis 1, we can see that in order to be a 24-hour day, you have to have day, the word day, number, evening or morning, or evening and morning, or the word night. All of those things qualify basically as a 24-hour day. And if you look in Genesis 1, that's literally what we have. Everything. Over and over again. We have the word night. We have evening. We have morning. We have number. We have day. So it means a 24-hour day. There's no, there's no indication. God could have used other terms if he wanted to convey longer periods of time, but he didn't. He used the word day in the context of a 24-hour day. And we know this was about 6,000 years ago, not millions and billions of years ago, because it's very clear from the chronologies and the genealogies and those kinds of things that we have in scripture that there's only 6,000 years there, right? So again, it's what's really happening is these individuals um, who are professing Christians, and we're not questioning whether or not they're a Christian, but the, but the problem is they're taking man's ideas of millions of years of evolution and trying to force them into the Bible. And every time you do that, the Bible loses, okay? Every single time. It's not, oh, maybe we need to change our ideas. It's, no, we need to change what the Bible very clearly and very literally and very historically says. And, and one of the biggest issues, too, that we have to deal with with the whole evolution issue is that if, evolution, if God used evolution over millions of years, then that means he used death, okay, because that is what is involved in millions of years of evolution, death and suffering and disease to bring about mankind and every other living thing. And that's a major theological problem because you have death before sin instead of death being the punishment for sin, right, after Adam's sin. And so there's a lot of problems, right, baked into these old earth ideas um, that he talks about here. And um, you talked a little bit about myth. Right. Yes. You want to expound on yeah, that? Yeah, for sure. So he's basically saying that, um, well, uh, Christians are worried that this idea turns Genesis into a myth. Maybe it does, but it's not the kind of myth we usually think about. So he's kind of trying to convey this idea that it's fiction. It's not really historical, but it still has some truth about reality involved, so we can still believe parts of it. But hang Very on. Wishy-washy. Yeah, I actually have a great quote from, if you know, Pastor Richard Wormbrand. He was persecuted in uh, Romania for being a Christian during communism. He said that when the communists began applying pressure to Christians, it 
it was the liberal theologians who caved first, and his quote is worth reading. He said, their thinking was along the lines of, why should I die for a dead God and a problematic Bible? If the stories or accounts of Adam and Eve are not true, if Joshua didn't stop the sun, if the prophecies written many, uh, were, were written many years after they were fulfilled, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, if he did not rise bodily from the dead, then there are more lies in the Bible than in Pravda, which was the communist newspaper. Why should I go to death for what is not true or at least remains problematic? So another problem with compromising on these ideas of man's word is that it positions us not to trust the Bible. And if we don't trust the Bible, we are not going to survive persecution when we are asked to follow God's word above man's for actual um, pain of you know, persecution and death. Yeah, ideas have consequences, and you actually bring up a great point. You think about the guys, the people who will compromise the very first chapters of Genesis. Do they apply that same line of thinking when it comes to the virgin birth, when it comes to the resurrection? Because scientifically speaking, those two events cannot happen scientifically. So are they going to say the same thing, that those are just some kind of mythological stories that maybe have some truth in it? No, of course not. So you see that inconsistency. But one of the other big things is when you're taking this stance of millions of years of death and suffering, you're actually undermining the gospel itself, the gospel messages itself. Because you think about it, if Genesis is just a mythological story, then that means Jesus died from myth logical problem. So he's a mythological savior who offers a mythological hope for the future. You guys see the issue there? So again, just by taking that, um, a lot of these, uh, a lot of Christians, they don't really think through these type of implications that you're actually undermining the gospel itself, which is the bedrock of Christianity. And we see people doing this over and over again. William Lane Craig, like he uses, he starts off with talking about him and he's written a book mm -hmm. called, recent book called In the Quest of the Historical Adam. And one of the things there that he tried to call Genesis 1 through 11, he says they're mytho history, okay? So they're like inventing terms, literally, to, to try to explain how we can take evolution of millions of years and somehow sync it with the, with the account of creation in scripture. Okay, that's, that's literally what they're trying to do. Um, and he says, you know, we don't need to read this literally. Um, they, the origin and the fall of man are metaphorical or figurative. They're not literal. Um, it's, it's Israel's foundational myth. And again, it's just this idea that we're trying to say, well, we know these things happen. We know God did it, but it's kind of like, um, this is just a, a, a telling of it. It didn't really happen that way. But the mo most important thing is that God did it. But like Rob said, it, no, that's not the most important thing. Because if God didn't say, if God didn't do it as he said he did it in his word, okay, and it, that's true in Genesis, well, why isn't it true in other places right. as well, right? Can we really trust it or not? And it's really undermining uh, the authority and the truthfulness of God's word, and ultimately that undermines the gospel. So yes, this is a very important issue. Um, it's, not, it's not good to say, I have no idea, um, because again, we know from God's word, we can know those things, and we need to um, know those things, so to speak. That's why yeah. we exist here at the Creation Museum, and the Ark Encounter is really to help equip the church and help them know um, these truths and the importance of Yeah, because of if Genesis Absolutely. 1 isn't really true, how do you know John 3, 16? How do you know Romans chapter 10, verse 9 is really true? So if the Bible is not accurate on geology, why trust its theology, right? So reinterpreting Genesis just basically unlock, unlocks a door to then doubting the rest of God's word. And that's what we're seeing in today's culture. We're losing the next generation at a rapid pace. And we actually have a great resource that talks about that as well uh, called Divided Nation, written by our CEO and founder, Ken Ham. So if you guys would like to learn more about what we just talked about in terms of the relevance of Genesis and why it's so important that we take a strong stance on biblical authority. I highly, check, highly encourage you guys to check out this book. Get this book into your library today. It's, it's going to really help you to have an impact on the culture that's around us. Yeah. 
All right, next story. In an incredible discovery, wrens teach their babies to sing before their hats. So I was absolutely fascinated by this article. Mm -hmm. And for one, one, well, a couple reasons, but one is I recently visited Australia, and so the bird that they're actually talking about here, the superb fairy wren, um, which I love that name, superb fairy wren. Mm -hmm. So the superb fairy wren, this is a picture of what the birds look like. They're really tiny, but they're absolutely stunning in my opinion. Um, very bright blue uh, color to them, and um, what what they discovered in this particular thing is that these female birds are actually singing, okay, and the unhatched eggs, so the embryos inside those eggs are learning the song of their mother, and when they are born, they actually sing elements of that song right away, basically, and that's how mama, and they think that somehow that's encouraging the mother to feed the babies. How cool is that, right? Cool. I mean, how did that evolve by random chance over millions <laughs> the, of years? I don't know what the baby luck. birds did before <laughs> that happened. Um, but anyway, I thought that was really neat. Absolutely. It's just another great example of really good observational science. Mm -hmm. And when we do uh, do good observational science, we see that it confirms that we have an amazing designer. But of course, they make a lot of uh, assumptions from historical science in asking, well, how did this evolve? And they talk about how Darwin actually came up with this assumption that male songbirds are the ones that sing more uh, for courtship reasons, so therefore females wouldn't necessarily sing as much. So it's an example of how when you start with the wrong assumptions, you don't ask the right questions and look in the right places, and that holds back science. That's what uh, evolutionary thinking did in this case, because a more recent study found that over 70% of female songbirds worldwide also sing. Mm -hmm. So it's an example of having the wrong uh, historical assumptions holds back the scientific process and keeps you from discovering these cool things. I'm an engineer, so I just think this is awesome. It's just a clear confirmation of God's design and nature. I mean, he really is the master engineer. He's the master designer. And then in here, they try to give an evolutionary ex explanation that really just doesn't fly. Um, doesn't, uh, doesn't fly okay. very well. That's good. Sorry. Good. All right. <laughs> Did that not crack you up? Crack yeah, you and, up. and <laughs> their evolutionary explanation was yeah. basically like, well, maybe it's so cuckoo eggs, which cuckoos are, you know, they'll invade other nests, they'll lay their eggs in other nests, basically, so they don't have to raise the babies. Cuckoo eggs only incubate for a few days, which isn't long enough to learn the song, and so maybe that helps the, the wrens not feed the cuckoo eggs. Well, they could actually test that, okay? That's an observable thing they could test. They haven't done that, mm -hmm. but my favorite evolutionary explanation is this one. Singing to their own young, female wrens are teaching their offspring to favor certain cultural traits, which will then be carried on to the next generation. What cultural traits are <laughs> birds learning? That must be passed yeah. on to the next generation. I mean, I'm just kind of like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, but again, I think they're just throwing something out there. Yeah, they have no <laughs> hoping idea. people won't think too much about it. Um, and, and by the evolutionary explanation, instead of the biblical one, right, in which God created these um, animals, these birds, amazingly complex, um, to be able to survive in this world and, and feed their young and, and do these things. But my favorite line, though, is at the very last. Females are hardly the weaker or more silent sex. Just had to throw that feminism in there. What was kind of sad, though, it's like they're very um, aware of how that birds as embryos can learn things and can interact with their moms. But then, unfortunately, we see in our culture today, people don't ascribe that same thinking that they apply to birds to humans, recognizing the values of humans uh, in utero as well. Right, yeah, and that, that leads into our next article. Um, Biden's top priority for a second term, abortion rights. And so one of the things that Biden has said is if he basically does get reelected, um, his number one thing in the second term, he said, first of all, 
Roe. Um, he, so he wants to restore Roe because he says it's un, somebody said this, what the president means is that it's unfathomable that women today wake up in a country with less rights than their ancestors, which is really only 50 some years ago, okay? But anyways, um, had years ago. So you've been reading off actually a lot on abortion case law. And so why don't you just give us just a short summary of kind of where this has been and where we're at now. Absolutely, so that famous case, Roe v. Wade, that is how they overturned um, the idea that states can control abortion laws themselves. They basically rule that there is a constitutional right to abortion. Um, they're not allowed to make up laws. They have to find them in the constitution somehow. So basically, they conjured up this right to privacy from a bunch of different things in the Constitution, and then they linked that to there must be a right for abortion. And there's a lot of strange reasoning that went uh, down with that, um, but then that ruling was upheld a few years later by another court case, um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and they got rid of the privacy reasoning. It really didn't make sense, but they tried to come up with another... Um, principle from the Constitution, and that's liberty to affirm abortion. And they defined liberty in a very strange way. They said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. So that's kind of just this whole idea that you look inside yourself to see what truth is, and then you live that out, and uh, you should be able to make choices in a way that affirms your inner truth. That's an idea called expressive individualism, and you see that all over American law. There's been some really good writing on that. The Dobbs Court, so Dobbs versus Jackson was the case that overturned Roe v. Wade, and they pointed out, okay, individuals are certainly free to think and say what they wish about existence and human life and all that, but they're not always free to act in accordance with those thoughts. So it goes back to the idea, when you hear language of rights and liberty, you have to ask, okay, right to do what? Freedom to do what? Is the freedom to take someone else's uh -huh. life because they're an inconvenience to your concept of existence, is that a legitimate right? Would that apply in any other case of taking someone else's Life. Yeah, they say over and over again in this article, I talk about the rights, right, in terms about the American people. It's all about the American people, but rights for who exactly? What about the rights for the little women in the womb, right? They always talk about the rights for the women. What about the little women in the room? They talk about what's right for all of the American people. Is it really all American people, or is it just a certain class of American people that's being forgotten about having less rights there? So it's also just a reminder, too, just because Roe v. Wade was overturned does not mean that the war is over. The war is actually just now intensifying because now it's at the state level. And we're seeing more and more states. States like Ohio, for example, trying to now uh, put into their constitution the rights to basically murder their child in the womb for any reason at any stage. And so the war for the pre-born really is not over. Um, and so it's also just a reminder for Christians to go out and vote. I mean, it's no secret. Biden is the most... Uh, pro-abortion president we've ever seen. And, but ultimately, that's the right, it's not really the ultimate uh, uh, solution Yeah, it's here. not the ultimate solution. I mean, it's good, and we need to do those things, and we need to fight for life in that sense. But we have to remember that the gospel is the solution, and mm -hmm. we need to be helping these women and men to make wise choices, right, when it comes to their um, offspring and their children. And, um, and, and there's lots of different ways to do that, be involved in pregnancy care centers, um, helping them and just and your church has a ministry or whatever it may be and just really really um, feeding into the lives of these men and women and we have a great exhibit here the fearfully and wonderfully made exhibit and a lot of great resources that actually accompany that I just had a, um, a director a former director of a pregnancy care center who goes overseas um, and we have these great little lithographs that basically have the un the unborn child at different stages and she said they had taken some to Cuba and how amazing mm -hmm. like these women are seeing these things and how impactful that is to them and so um, she's like we want more of those you know to 
be able to take to different places. And so um, even little things like that can make a big difference in helping people make those really wise decisions and helping them know the biblical truth that all individuals are made in the image of God, and therefore we need to, um, we need to preserve that life. And like Dr. Purden was saying, it's not enough just to intellectually be against it. We have to actually put it into action, actually walk the walk here. It's very important as Christians we do that. So it kind of goes also a little bit into this next article. Parents who refuse children gender, gender change face seven years in jail in Scotland. So in Scotland, um, basically parents who refuse to um, help their children change their gender, which, by the way, is not actually possible, right? This is just pretending to be something else. Um, and uh, they so whether it might be surgery or hormones or dressing or how they're referred to or whatever, it's anywhere from between two and seven years in prison for if a parent or a guardian or even a pastor or something like that would somehow prohibit um, them from doing that. And they kind of use this broad term of conversion therapy. Now, there are forms of conversion therapy, which um, I'm at least familiar with here in the United States, that are absolutely 100% wrong. They are not right. But that is not what we're talking about here, all right? They have very broad definition for conversion therapy. And they're basically saying any way in which you inhibit a child from changing their gender is now going to be criminalized in Scotland. Ladies first. Oh, yeah. So this is actually, it struck me because it's very similar to what we see in Canada as well. They've had conversion therapy bans very similar, um, where you can get five years in prison for giving someone conversion therapy, two years just for promoting it. And it also reminded me back when... Um, just looking at some of the history of communism during the Russian Revolution when the communists were trying to really change what society had been before, the way they had to do it was to weaken family ties. And one of the ways that they did that was by basically making kids the superior authority over the wishes of parents, which is something that we're seeing again as well. So these are just patterns that uh, come up again and again in history, and it's a reminder um, just to continue to defend the truth of God's word and defend the integrity of the family unit as well. With zero compromise. With zero compromise. I just wrote on the, at the very top here. I mean, this is just another example of the state trying to become the god of the system, right, in terms of like we were talking about. Really, this is the modern-day blasphemy law against the state's religion, which is the religion of sexual humanism. So Let's remember to continue praying for the West. Pray for Scotland here. And this is likely coming to the United States as well. So let's, let's be prepared for that. And again, just like this one, and just like the, the previous article we talked about with abortions, this is actually just a symptom of the root cause, which is the abandonment of God's word. Really, we go back to God's word. We go back to Genesis. That's what gives us the foundation for the sanctity of life. That's what gives us the, the foundation for there, there's only two genders, right? Male and female. So that's what we have to go back to. That is our standard. And like we were saying, like Dr. Perrin was saying, it's very wishy-washy, very broad range, very subjective in terms of this policing that's happening. Um, but of course, like we, like we talked about in the last article, it's not enough just to have the knowledge. We have to actually put it into practice. What's the solution here? Um, our CEO and founder, Ken Ham, he, great, he puts it um, really great. He says, we need to wake up the sleeping giant. That's what we need to do. Who is the sleeping giant? It's Christians. Christians need to be more assertive in boldly standing up for biblical truth, right? And if we do that, we're going to have a huge impact on this culture. Think about it. A lot of these atheist, secular uh, activists, they're actually the minority in our society, yet they have the most powerful voice. They're not only trying to get rid of the Ten Commandments and, and prayer and all these different things from the government and school systems. They're now trying to normalize sins like this in terms of LGBT and transgender. Again, they are the minority. Christians are the majority. So it's time for us to wake up the sleeping giant. Yeah, one of the things they said at the very end of this article, it, it's just... <laughs> So think about this. And this is where the secular worldview, we can see the inconsistency in it, right? So they said, 
Um, Nobody should be told there is something wrong with them or be forced to be ashamed of who they are just because of their identity. Okay, so they're referring to children. They shouldn't be told there's something wrong and be forced to, um, you know, be ashamed of this and not embrace their true identity. What if we said that about, let's say, Hitler, for example, who wanted to kill another people group because he believed that they were, you know, causing a lot of problems. So so Hitler should not be told there's something wrong with him or be forced to be ashamed of who he is just because he thinks other people are less evolved or, you know, more of a problem. (laughs) You you cannot be consistent with that, right? If you're going to say this is true of these children when it comes to their gender, where does it stop, right? Why does it only stop with that? I mean, uh, what if somebody wants to murder? What if somebody wants to um, exercise themselves to death? You know, I mean, it's, it just shows you the total inconsistency of a secular worldview and, and why, like what Rob said, you know, we need to get back um, to the word of God and realize that God has instituted the family, right, first and foremost. That was the first thing he created, right, was Adam and Eve, and then they had children, and so he created that family, and so that is where um, parents have rights to their children. It's not the state, it's the parents, and so anyways, we, we really need to get back to that, right, God's good design for the family. Yeah, in the secular worldview, they're just dancing to their DNA, right, so you really can't have any right or wrong. There is no absolute standard there, so again, we have to go back to that biblical worldview, and one of the other double standards I always think about, too, is they always say, well, you know, you can't do conversion therapy of, you know, straight to gay, but you can do it from the other way or gay to straight, I mean, so it, so you can see that inconsistency there. Just Yeah. Anyway, okay, moving on to our last article for today. So this is talking about the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, So they have found forming stars in the Triangulum Galaxy. So apparently these molecular clouds are birthing stars. They're called young stellar objects, if I have that, say that correctly. They found about 800 of these in this galaxy. And so Rocket Rob Webb here, um, he's a... um, uh, rocket scientist, literally. Um, and so Just he's going to tell science. us a little bit about this and the, some of the problems with that. Yeah, we'll see how, how much we can do in the next two minutes, so there's not too much time. But, uh, <laughs> you can do it. I mean, this is just the same old rehash story you hear again and again, you know, trying to find these young birthing stars. And so I actually have a whole YouTube video that talks more about this. You can jump onto our uh, Creation Museum YouTube website. I did one that just um, is a very similar article. It talks about James Webb. In case you're not familiar, this is the Space Telescope, the most powerful telescope that's ever been built. I'm not actually related to James Webb. It's one of the common questions I always get. I mean, technically, we all go back to Adam and Eve, but, so we're kind of related in that way. But anytime you're looking at these one of these articles, you always have to look for the unstated biases, the unstated assumptions behind it. And really what is, it's the unstated bias of naturalism, assumption of naturalism, believing that all that there is is natural law around us. And so what they found here is these baby stellar objects in the galaxy 2.7 million light years away. And what makes this so unique is that it's millions of light years more distance than any previous operation observations of newly forming stars. So it's really a new record here. And so it's actually pretty awesome technology. James Webb is using what's called the Min Infrared Imager, MIRI. And so it's able to use infrared. So you think about infrared, that's the heat coming off your hand, which is invisible to our human eyes. We can't actually see it. Um, But that allows us to to then look into the hidden regions of the universe. Because a lot of these uh, so-called young stellar objects are hidden behind all of these clouds of gas and dust. We can't see them. The visible light's blocking them. But with MIRI, we're able to look through it, and they're able to find 793 of these so-called baby stars hidden inside massive clouds. So real quick, um, just because you 
you find clouds that are, that just because you find baby stars surrounded by uh, gas and dust doesn't actually mean that the gas and dust had anything to do with the formation of the star. Again, um, God could have made them at the same time, but it really comes down to the interpretation based on your naturalistic worldview. Um, one of our resident astronomers here, Daniel Danny Faulkner, he puts it great. He says, uh, sprinkled in all of this was the evolutionary ideas of how stars form. Uh, these objects are just point infrared sources and dense clouds that are interpreted in terms of the evolutionary model. Translation, James Webb basically found a whole bunch of these IR sources that are being interpreted based on evolutionary naturalistic beliefs. Yeah, so they have ideas, supposedly, of how stars form, and then they find things that look like maybe this fits their idea, and mm -hmm. so they just put that on it, even though, again, they're just observing it, and they don't really know its yeah. history. But they, they didn't that. actually observe the process of it changing. That's another big misconception. This is a static image that they're looking at. It's not like the image is actually moving and changing, so it's a static image again. And from the biblical world, if you want to learn more about that, check out Dr. Danny's book, The Expanse of Heaven, as well as the companion book called The Created Cosmos, I believe. No, The Created Cosmos? Yeah, The yeah, Created Cosmos. I believe that's the name of it. And from the biblical worldview, stars did not form over millions of years. They were formed when he said he made the stars also, like we read in Genesis. And really, these images, and you're going to learn more about this book, just a shot, talks about the magnificence and the glory of God that we see in the heavens. Psalm 19.1 says the heavens declare the glory of God. So if you guys like to know more about that, check out Danny's book. Um, awesome resource on that. And we also have this other book um, on uh, archaeology and the Bible by Tom Meyer. And so it's a great look at some of the biblical um, artifacts, um, some of the artifacts that have been found that, again, confirm God's word. And so that's a great um, starter for that. And then also coming up uh, later this year in October, now that we're in 2024, mm -hmm. we have our annual Pastors and Christian Leaders Conference. Um, next year, this year's conference is called Authority Answering Compromise. So there's a great lineup of speakers for that. You can go to answersforpastors.org to find out more information about that, October 8th through the 10th. And I talked a little bit about our Explore Archaeology program. We offer a wide variety of science programs here at the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. So if you get on either of those websites, click on the Education tab, and you can find out more about all of our um, Explore Days, our camps that we have coming up this summer, our high school labs, and more. Explore well, we appreciate... Rockets, that's one of them. Yeah. So <laughs> learn about rocket science lots of cool with me. Stuff. So lots of cool stuff. Yep. Well, we appreciate you being with us today, and we'll see you back here next week. God bless.